If we want to be balanced and well-rounded in any profession, we have to make sure to stay out of echo chambers. In this interview with Chef Dan, you may feel like some of your views about what school food should be like are challenged, but I encourage you to hang in there because there's so much value in this interview. This was recorded before we got into the thick of the pandemic, so a lot of us are in a different place right now with menu planning than we usually would be at this part of the year. But all of this advice is still so relevant. A lot of us, as we were in more of an emergency feeding mode, had to do a lot of those simple, just handheld sandwich options. But as children go back to school and as more options are open, I know we probably still won't have anyone going through the line, but a lot of us are going to be delivering to classrooms. We again have an opportunity to get back to a higher level of quality so that we can retain our customers and add as much value to the student's educational experience as possible, which I think is very exciting. Let's get right into it. Thank you so much, Chef Dan, for coming on the show. My pleasure. I really was super excited about the chance to talk to you after I saw how extensive your experience is. And then that on top of all that, you have so much relevant school nutrition experience. So it's not a very common combination. A lot of people who get professional training, don't have any awareness that there's any need for chefs in school nutrition, or maybe it just doesn't seem like a logical fit for them. So your experience is super unique. So I'm glad to have you. Thank you. And I would also think the reverse is also true, that you don't have a lot of people in school nutrition that have culinary training. Yes, that is very true. And like we chatted earlier, There's so many people who think that a degree in nutrition somehow means you have professional culinary training, and that's definitely not what that means. And a lot of times people seem to think that I'm going to have all these magical culinary skills. And as a dietitian, my focus was on clinical and science and metabolism, not on how to make food delicious. But it's so important that food be appealing. It doesn't matter how healthy it is if nobody wants to eat it. So that's why I think it's so important to partner with people who actually have culinary training. You really can't succeed in one area without the other. True that. If you look at like examples throughout the history of, uh, of the restaurant industry, people who have tried to do nutritious foods have bombed because they tasted mm -hmm. terrible. The, the McLean comes to mind. Uh, I don't even remember that. It sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But nobody, I mean, people might've tried it, but it, it was, it tanked immediately. Yeah. So how did you balance that? So with your experience in, as an executive chef, what made you even want to work in an educational setting? Um, I was looking for a new challenge and I was, um, asked to be a judge in a ProStart cooking competition. Uh, ProStart is a uh, a, a national curriculum for two years for high school students, juniors and seniors. It's taught in 47 states to 100,000 students a year. And it developed professional skills, both in cooking and hospitality and restaurant management 
um, the business side as well as the cooking side and the history, safety and sanitation, everything that goes into you know operating a restaurant. The competition happens every year between different pro start teams from different schools and is divided into two separate competitions. There is the culinary competition, which is like a cooking show. So a group of students, three or four, must uh, uh, make from scratch a three-course meal in one hour using only two butane burners for cooking. And they are judged on everything, on teamwork, cleanliness, safety and sanitation, uh, packing, because they have to bring all their own materials with them. So they had to have practiced all this uh, on presentation, flavor, everything. There's 26 or so different judges that judge every single thing the students do as they're doing it. And then after they do it, when they go to present their plates to the judges, it's two appetizer plates, two entree plates, both identical and two desserts also identical. And so that's amazing. Uh, it's amazing for a professional chef, let alone, you know, high school juniors and seniors. And some of the work that these kids did was blew me away. I was, I was totally impressed by, by many of them. Uh, and I thought to myself, why doesn't this happen in San Francisco, the biggest food city on the West Coast, if not one of the biggest in the world? And then you get into the education world where, uh, you know, that's a whole other discussion. But there's another competition as well. And that is the management competition where students act as entrepreneurs and they develop a business plan for a restaurant, including menu, design, decor, uh, uh, hours, organizational chart, uh, everything. And they pitch it to industry professionals as though they were uh, investors using a PowerPoint presentation. And then they have a critical thinking part. And the whole thing I thought was amazing. And so I sold my restaurants to my uh, junior partner and, uh, well, wound up teaching. Uh, the way that worked was that I had written an article in the newspaper that said, uh, you know, asking the question, why doesn't this exist in San Francisco? And uh, it should. We we have students who need this. Uh, this is a great food city. There'd be plenty of uh, chefs to help, you know, with um, mentoring these students who would be willing to. And yet it didn't exist because everything was pro college, college, college. And so uh, the principal of what used to be the trade school came to my board meeting. I was on the advisory board of the uh, hospitality and tourism academies, which really were more related to hotel operations and tourism, um, and uh, asked me or asked us, you know, to how we would go about starting a culinary program. And I went to him after the meeting and I said, I'll sell my restaurants and go do it for you if you can make it work. And so he did. And then that was after about four years of doing that, uh, the California Restaurant Association called my program best in the state. And uh, I was the top management instructor in the state. Um, and I didn't come at it from an educational background at all. I came at it from industry, um, which doesn't happen so much in high school, but it does in college, I think, in university setting. That's so, definitely something I look for. I would prefer to have a professor who has actually done it, who has used these skills in a real world. World Especially with a real world uh, uh, curriculum. I mean, philosophy, no. Uh, but if you're talking about business or in the, you know, the restaurant business, in this case, or cooking, it would help to have someone who, you know, was a chef and not a career home ec teacher, perhaps. Right. Not to, not to take away from them, but it's a different world. 
Yes, two different worlds. Because like you were explaining, even with that competition, to be able to handle the transportation and think all those logistics through, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people I know who do have some professional culinary training that didn't encompass that, that would be challenged by that. And it shows when we try and do feedings offsite versus we see people from industry who maybe do food shows all the time and how quickly they can pack up and what they know they need to have and the way they can think it through. There are just so many things you won't think about until you've actually had to do it to even know what to include in your training. Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, believe me, I made the mistake of assuming the obvious to me so many times. And afterwards I continually kicked myself for really the first year or two on the depth of things that I should not have assumed, you know, the to, to oil something before putting it on a sheet pan. I mean, it's very simple mm-hmm. stuff, but, uh, you know, I, I would continually assume too much. And right. so I think, I think that that for someone from industry going into teaching, it's, it's eye opening because you're not dealing with people who, you know, you're employing and they work for you and they get a paycheck and they you're dealing with students who may or may not really want to be there. And so, you know, I found it possible to appeal to these students because I really did not do things the, the teachery way they were used to. Um, I did not talk to them the way teachers do. I did not, um, you know, I, I didn't have the same approach, but it seemed to work for me. Right. And what were some of your experiences with the food service operations inside the school systems? Um, well, my kitchen was kind of attached or conjoined to the the uh, the kitchen for the school. And I, I it took the first year to to negotiate that that division effectively. But I got along with the cafeteria people and, you know, I would relieve them of equipment they didn't use because they didn't really cook much. And I, I would see what they you know, made and what sold and didn't sell. And so to, to my way of looking at things, why would you give something out to kids because it was nutritious if it didn't sell? If the kids saw it and said, no way, I don't want that. And right. then the kind of things that do sell. Uh, and even though all of my students were on free lunch, uh, but you'd see the things that do sell. And I would say, well, why not do more of those? <laughs> that would be the, the business approach to things. But, you know, he was just doing what he was told. So that was that. Right. And what was typically the issue with the items that were nutritious but didn't sell? What was? Mm, so I, uh, the way I look at it is you, you can't construct a menu or a recipe from a, from a you know, nutritionary standpoint. You have to construct it to be tasty and to be edible. Uh, and by edible, I mean like, the students can eat it with the implements they have. Most of my students are not particularly good with a fork and knife. They can handle handheld foods and they were okay with a spoon, but I had to train my students how to sit at a restaurant and use a fork and knife properly, how to lay them down properly. You know, how, the whole thing was just not part of the way they ate normally. Um, handheld foods rule the day, pizza, sandwiches, burritos, or soups, and things they get with a spoon, which everybody seems to intrinsically get. That's uh, honestly a big insight because I, I don't think a lot of us have noticed that, that not all of our kids are comfortable with a fork and a knife. In our schools, they only get plastic ones. So my assumption always is it's that the 
fork's not great, but I, it hadn't even occurred to me that some people just mostly get handheld foods. And so yeah. they're more comfortable with that. They, we have a chef in a separate department. He, he is doing like a CTE type of program. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing because they serve like four course meals on right. Fridays and it sells out. Like it's constantly sold out. So when we go over there, the kids that are there, they know how to enjoy fine dining. But you can see sometimes when other younger people come in, they're like, "Ugh, what do I do with all these utensils? Like, right, right. It's a little intimidating. No, I, I figured it out when, when I was still at uh, the restaurants before I started teaching, I was, you know, on the advisory board. So I had a group of students come and sit in my restaurant, which is, you know, in the financial district. And I had to go through the entire meal with them of how to sit down, when to sit down, what to do with the napkin, what the forks and knives and spoons were for, what to do with them when you were done eating. The whole thing, totally foreign to a lot of students. Um, That's so great. That I wish that that was something that everybody was taught because I can't imagine how embarrassing or how nerve wracking it would be to be out, you know, at maybe an interview or something that ends up happening in a setting like that and not knowing what to do when. Well, so this is what I explained to them and why they needed to learn this, because, you know, of course, they look at a teacher saying, why do I need to know this? I don't care. I eat burritos. And I would say that I see on a regular basis interviews happening in my restaurant where the boss is interviewing someone and the interview is very much about cultural fit, always is. And Mm -hmm. if you're watching someone who holds a knife like a Viking, you know, uh, instead of properly and who doesn't speak nicely to the server and who doesn't know how to order off a menu, uh, you know, in terms of courses and how that sequence of courses works, uh, that person's not going to get hired at a lot of firms because they'll look at them like, do I want my clients interacting with this, you know, yokel? And uh, so learning the proper table manners for, you know, a, a first world Western nation is important. The same way as how embarrassing would it be to move, go to China or Japan unable to use chopsticks you would starve right? Um, or, or they would, you know, think less of you because you're unable to adapt. So same thing here, you know, you need to learn how to use the knife and fork or the chopsticks. Uh, but if you're trying to feed kids, uh, you know, in, where you are, I think learning the knife and fork would be uh, critical <laughs> or you need to adapt to them and uh, serve foods that are edible with a spoon or just a fork for scooping purposes or, just um, or handheld. Right. That definitely makes sense. We can do the spoons on a basis in our programs, and then we can make an effort to give the kids that educational element, maybe at special events or something, because I do think it's going to be crucial for them. Right. Right. But you can also adapt by serving the foods in a handheld form. If you want to give in and gradually work your way into you know, more complicated meals, but there has to be some sort of a, you know, training in that, I think. Right. Also, so what, plastic forks and knives, I mean, plastic forks are good for scooping, but not good for stabbing. Okay. Right. That's good to know because intuitively we think it'd be the opposite because if it's just good for scooping, then why wouldn't I mean, a spoon already does that. So you would think that the yeah. fork was going to be for, you know, yeah. good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, we've seen some of our kids fighting. We have these ribby cues that everybody likes. And um, some kids who obviously do try and use utensils are used to that at home and they don't want to grab something with sauce on it with their hand. 
but eventually they give up and they have to because you just can't right you can't eat it any other way so what are some successful handheld options that can be flavorful and appealing and work in a school setting i mean they're they're not new so anything in the form of a burrito or a sandwich uh or even a pizza can work or flatbread right um so that it, it usually tends to be something starch based to hold it together. Uh, you could do lettuce wraps. I mean, those are not uncommon. You know, uh, the ch- classic Chinese squab and lettuce cup can be altered to be chicken or, you know, chicken and uh, a vegetable in, in lettuce. Um, although some kids might not eat the lettuce. Uh, mm. but, but I think if that's the delivery device, they'll, they'll figure that out pretty, pretty quickly. Right. Um, so uh, sandwiches are, are potentially good and easy. Everybody knows about that. There's also, you know, my way of looking at things would be, you know, going to spoon meals uh, where you can get, you know, less starch, more meat and vegetable sort of uh, meals. And that would be soups. So I had the idea that it would be great because soup is eaten by everyone around the world. And, you know, it depends on what... Uh, what your demographic makeup is of your student body. But the fact is soup is, it works. The reason, there's a reason people have canned soup in their pantries, right? Because you could make decent soups for cheap um, and you could vary them immensely and alter them very easily just by whatever garnish you add. So I think you could do, you know, Mexican soups, you can do American soups, you can do Italian soups, you can do Chinese soups, Vietnamese soups. There's so many options. They're delicious. And they're an easy way to deliver, uh, you know, protein and vegetables and, and nutrition. But I think still the main thing has to be, it has to taste good. So to try to make every meal be a nutritional balance of a pyramid or something is it's not going to work. And, and the fact is that you might have some more meat at one meal, more fat in another meal, more veggies in another meal. But over the course of a year, they balance out. You follow a Mediterranean diet. No one is constructing it from a, a, a nutritional breakdown. That would be like trying to construct a, a frog out of a DNA sequence. It doesn't work. So really it has to taste good. And if you just use real food, natural food, so meat, poultry, vegetables, fruits, uh, natural fats, whole grains, whatever, you can, you can get a decent meal, uh, a tasty meal. And then over the course of, say, a week, it balances out. How do you get a soup to be flavorful with those ingredients? Like how do you do a stock? Does it necessarily need to start with a store-bought or um, commercial broth or something in a large setting like that in school nutrition? I, I mean, t- making chicken stock is not rocket science. You need chicken bones um, and uh, I, onions, carrots, and celery if you want to make a Western-style chicken broth, or just ginger if you want to make a Chinese-style chicken broth, ginger and garlic. Um, and just let it cook and strain it. Uh, and that's it. So that's your base. And once you have that, then it's very easy to make a bunch of different soups out of that. So, you know, strain that out. If you want to make minestrone, you know, on, on Friday – your leftover vegetables from all week long wind up being your minestrone. You know, your your onions, carrots, celery, broccoli, peas, green beans, cabbage, you know, throw them all in there, uh, some bacon or something, um, all works. And then you can also garnish it. Typically, you'd garnish in, in Italy, you'd garnish it with a pesto, 
you know, cheese, basil, nuts, um, garlic potentially, and puree that, and that goes on top. But the same concept exists in in Vietnamese or Mexican cooking too, where you have the basics, you know, long cooked soup, and then you put fresh things in it as a garnish and you eat it all together. So putting chips in your soup, you know, and, and a few other things, and you pretty much have a tortilla soup. Uh, let's say you made a chicken soup first, you know, add a few things and you have, and, and some salsa, and maybe some onions and cilantro, and you have a tortilla soup. And if you want to add, uh, you know, some you know, braised brisket and fish sauce and whatnot, you suddenly have fun. Uh, maybe some noodles, right? Mm. So, you know, there's there's options and I think soups go over well. But again, you got to aim with flavor. Um, and I don't think, I think, you know, if you have start with a recipe that's, you know, perhaps not as healthy as they would like, then you can reverse engineer at that point and just tweak the ratios a little bit without losing too much. Um, you know, their chefs and nutritionists are, are, you know, mortal enemies in one way, but that that's kind of an old way of thinking, I think. Uh, people say they want to eat healthier, but they just don't when given the option. And that's because they don't think it tastes good. And so, you know, the trick would be maybe not thinking that way. And if you look at like young chefs will put bacon and everything, or, you know, a lot of butter and everything, which is the way they were trained because fat is flavor. But, right. but more modern chefs, your Jose Andreas's of the world, your Von Gerichtens, um, you know, your Otolenghi's, who are all really amazing worldwide uh, uh, masters, you know, they go for flavor from the vegetables, they go for flavor from the meats and adding a ton of fat is not their go-to. They're trying to make, you know, if you're, especially if you're doing a multi-course tasting menu, if the main ingredient is butter, that's not going to be as alluring or as sexy as one where they really taste carrots and really taste, uh, you know, meat, really taste fish. Uh, and that happens because they're using flavor. So, protein or a vegetable and spice, acid, and salt. And, and any, some combination of those things, that's what heightens flavor. And that's what balances flavor. Um, that's a part of it, but it doesn't have to be the main part. Okay. That's pretty crucial. So what are some examples of those three things, the spice, acid, and salt? Never mind on the salt. <laughs> well, I mean, so with the fat, you need fat. You can't make no fat food successfully and have most people eat it on a regular basis. So the trick would be using a high quality fat. So that could be extra virgin olive oil. That could be uh, butter instead of margarine, which is terrible, right? So, but when you use butter, you use less butter than you would margarine. So you're ending getting less fat. It's just a better fat. If you're using bacon, nothing wrong with bacon, but you don't need a lot because the bacon goes a long way. If you're using anchovies, Anchovies give a ton of flavor. Nobody knows they're there because they dissolve in the sauce, but they give you that umami satisfaction index. Um, and uh, by umami, it's one of the with the you know main tastes, along with sour and bitter and sweet, uh, that that makes things satisfying. And the fact is, you could eat straight vegetables all day, and you won't. You might get full, but you won't really be satisfied because we're omnivorous as a species. And so having some animal in there and Parmesan cheese, which is super high in protein, more protein than a steak of the same weight, uh, anchovies, mushrooms, um, you know, ham, things that are really intense cured meat sort of things will give you a ton of satisfaction with per weight, very little. 
right? No one's going to eat an eight ounce serving of country ham. It right, is not yeah. going to happen. But a little bit of country ham in collard greens makes it delicious, right? You don't need much. Uh, bacon would be the same thing, just has more fat. Um, no one's putting chopped up steak or, or burger meat in their collard greens because it just doesn't taste as good. Mm-hmm. Um, anchovies, same thing. I mean, if you, you can have uh, dozens of Italian dishes, tomato sauce should have anchovies in it, unless you're doing a sauce that has pancetta or guanciale, or pork products like bacon in it. So um, if you do that, it will taste better. That's why it's called a marinara, it's a seafood sailor's sauce. Um, so, uh, oh, I don't think I ever, no, I never understood that until you just said that. If it's called pomodoro, that's a tomato sauce. doesn't have any animal in it. If it's called a marinara, it should have anchovies, sailor sauce. Mm. And a little anchovies and garlic do wonders for vegetables. So like I, I have two boys uh, age nine and 10 and they always, um, eat what I make with that has anchovies and capers in it, you know, or uh, garlic and anchovies the, they make, they, I make pasta with sardines in it and the, I, I, the sardines dissolve in the sauce. So they're getting their sardines and they're getting their flavor. They're getting their seafood. They're getting their omega three fatty acids, but it's sardines dissolved in tomato sauce. So it's pasta. Right? And how do you purchase those? Are those dehydrated or are they the in can. oil? The can is the appeal off the can, you know, a can sardines, um, and they're, they're basically a tuna relative. They're, they're just sustainable, um, and generally cheaper, but not necessarily depends on the quality. Um, but sardines are, use them as tuna, right? Okay. But you can make a salad out of it if you want to, but they're really best in a sauce. Um, uh, you can make a sandwich out of them if you want to. Kids won't eat that. But if you throw it in there, it's kind of like putting the overripe banana in a smoothie where they will eat that smoothie because they don't have to look at the banana. It'll be a better smoothie because it's in there, uh, but you know they uh, they won't eat the brown banana, right? Mm, okay, yeah, that's really helpful. So when it comes to trying to take on doing more scratch cooking in a operation that maybe hasn't done it for years, some of the protests or challenges that I hear is that the staff doesn't have the training anymore. Or that the staff turnover is too high to really get people up to the level that they need to be at. So one of the things you were explaining was there are key ingredients or key factors that make employees satisfied at work and keeps them there. Can you speak more to that? Um, sure. I, I In the restaurant business as well, which has tons and tons of mid, medium, uh, sorry, minimum wage employees, low wage workers. Um, and some operations have high turnover, some don't. The ones that don't, don't have uh, high turnover because of because they pay more. That's just not the case. If you treat people nicely and you give them a reason for working and they're satisfied uh, with their work environment, they feel appreciated and they're learning things that ultimately make them worth more money, then they will stay. So I had close to zero turnover at my restaurant over a decade uh, because – and I didn't pay them any more than my colleagues. I mean, in some cases, I probably paid them less, but they felt appreciated. People would tell them that they loved the food. I would tell them, great job. If they needed something, I helped them. Uh, but ultimately, they you treat them well. And I think with the cafeteria workers that I interacted with, nice people, um, but they, they were not, they were treated by 
staff and faculty as uh, lesser humans, um, I think. And they were treated by their own bosses as, you know, kind of widgets to push stuff out. And I think the the better way to do it as an employer, as a chef, would be to say, all right, let's treat them as culinary workers and give them the things that they would want. So for one, uh, they want feedback, they, especially good feedback, but anything to make them better what they do. And two would be, I think they need to be involved in the school as part of curriculum. Um, you know, now it's like the teachers who are, you know, generally white liberals, highly educated, uh, and they're focused on education and they look down on fast food or anything that's not, you know, available at the local co-op kind of thing. So I would, I would kind of use the ProStart model to involve the students and the teachers in curriculum. And I mean, food relates to everything. It's history, it's culture, it's language, it's nutrition, it's math, it's business. And so if you want to um, make those employee, those workers be a part of the curriculum, involve it in the curriculum. I think that there's plenty that teachers could do if they thought about it that would tie into school lunch, uh, you know, counting calories and fat grams and whatever you want to, uh, food costs and labor costs, figuring that out, um, doing surveys of students on what they thought and how they liked things or didn't like things and combining, figuring out the, the you know, doing marketing, basically, um, or even looking at the history of the foods that were going to come on there or suggesting things they would like and talking to students and persuading, uh, you know, the cafeteria folks to uh, change the menu to provide these sorts of things. Uh, I think there's plenty of academic hard and soft skills that can be brought in there. Also, I think in any city or, or suburban area where there are a lot of restaurants, you will have no problem getting chefs and restaurateurs to give their time one day a week or something uh, to help teach the cafeteria workers new skills they can use or even to opine on menus. I think, you know, mm-hmm. so many people watch Food Network. It's become such a part of the culture that if you involve local chefs in talking about food with students, with teachers and with cafeteria workers, the skills, the culture, the how to, the the garnishes, anything, anything having to do with with how we got what, what we're eating, the foodways, uh, you will get buy-in across the board. Uh, I found it's true with my students because I would involve directly involve those teachers uh, by making them Thanksgiving meals uh, with a book attached, including the history and business uh, of each recipe that the students developed uh, who cooked the dishes. Um, so my part is to. For the, to get the kids and the students in the in my classes to figure out how to make the foods, but also how to cost them out and where they came from, why they're cooking, what they're cooking, and how they're cooking it, um, and then to teach the, the teachers that. So the student, the teachers would come to Thanksgiving meal, which nobody missed um, uh, that the students had made, but they'd also be presented with this book that they could read about the dishes they were eating, and they were totally impressed and. You know, interestingly, it hits on the standards of every other subject. Um, Problems in most schools is that most teachers are in silos. English teachers teach English and math teachers teach math. And they've been doing it the same way since 1957 in a lot of cases. So the idea here is to break down silos and let's get people focused on the food. 
I think if you do that, if you you know train the cafeteria workers, if you give them feedback, if you involve them and the students and teachers in deciding what's going to be eaten and and then talking about it afterwards, suddenly they're a part of the school and they're not just there to warm and serve, which is ultimately unrewarding. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can imagine it gets very repetitive if you're not actually doing any cooking and not learning basic skills like knife skills and things that would translate into your home cooking and whatever job you have in the future if you end up not staying there. Right. Or if you get disrespected or sneered at. I mean, you know, that that doesn't help either. Uh, but yeah. I if you're going, if people are investing in you by bringing in professionals, people who they might want to meet um, and and showing them new ways to do things and suggesting like a, a way to improve something and giving those workers the ability at some point to improve what they're making. I mean, the ability to be creative at work is huge. And so for someone to go from, OK, I have to open this can and warm it up in a steam table to I'm going to open this can, warm up the steam table, but then I'm going to make uh, I don't know, a flavor in a new and exciting way that I learned from this chef, right? And, and it'll take me a little more time, but it'll be much better. And then have people react to that. You know, that ultimately, it gives you agency over your work. It makes everybody win. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how would you see that working? I, I've seen some programs where the nutrition department or maybe um, the ag department or whomever will create an entire curriculum and then present it to teachers and they work with a superintendent and it's like a whole program. Mm -hmm. But it sounded like what you were describing could also work as just making yourself available to teachers for individual projects. Mm -hmm. So not necessarily having like a full blown curriculum. I'm totally fine with the full blown project. What what I would insist on or suggest is to bring in industry from the outside. The the ivory tower has to open the door and the drawbridge and let in industry because ultimately a lot of these students, whether they're going to Harvard or you know struggling to graduate high school, are going to probably work in a restaurant at some point. Um, you know they're probably going to bartend. They're probably going to bus tables. They're probably going to wash dishes at some point to make money. They might want to make a career of it. If nothing else, let's start the resume off with something that shows you can show up to work and 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 learn, right? And and you know show progress, get promoted. Um, and so bringing in people from your local restaurant who these people would otherwise never meet, the students would never meet, and maybe the cafeteria workers would never meet. But bringing in the the person who owns the local steakhouse, Italian restaurant, Mexican restaurant, whatever. Um, that's awesome. And then those people will say, I want to go there or I want to work there. That guy was great. And and then you suddenly start a whole nother combination of conversations. My students had to do internships um, in restaurants as part of the curriculum, uh, both during school and then typically for summer jobs. And, you know, they had to find the internships themselves. They had to go out like they're finding a job. And ultimately that's super empowering. If you can find the place you want to work, talk to the people you want to work for and they take you on even as an unpaid intern, but ideally paid um, just to come and work and learn and see what it's like. Because I think in, in the restaurant industry there, there, I mean, I can't say after COVID, but up until, you know, a month ago, the restaurant industry was suffering from a years long, massive labor shortage. It had been projected, you know, 20 years ago 
when the army started spending billions of dollars to advertise for recruits. Um, and the true is true across industries. But with zero unemployment, the restaurant industry needs to build a pipeline. They need to find a way to bring young people in uh, and attract them to, you know, just start at the bottom and work their way up. And a lot of students could really benefit from that. Um, again, especially the students from the most challenging backgrounds, especially the kids who are not looking at Harvard scholarships. Uh, you know, those kids could really use uh, a leg up and a chance to, you know, uh, learn a valuable paying skill. Uh, and again, nobody stays a dishwasher for life. That's kind of rare. Typically, you start there when you're 16 or 18 and you work your way up and up and up. And every chef I know started as a dishwasher. Everyone. Right. Wow. Well, I do think there's been too much of a focus on just college prep. Like there was a point where there was a balance between the two because not everyone is going to college. And like you mentioned, even people who go to college are most likely going to need another source of income at some point. I mean, there are some people whose parents can pay their way and pay their rent and pay for everything. But then there's a whole lot of us who didn't have that option. And the kids we're teaching now are not going to have that option either. So, right. And and there's ways to, to kind of, you know, make uh, the, the career technical ed path be college friendly or more more than it was in 1957. You know, it's possible to look, for example, if math were taught in Excel, that would be a valuable skill right there. If students graduated high school knowing how to plug in formulas and use Excel, that would work in every job they will ever be in, even education, right? Um, and and you plug and if if they also learn how to you know plug in a profit and loss statement and interpret that using Excel, that will be valuable. If they want to go start their own business someday, they're going to have to devise a pro forma and you know sell it to investors. They need to learn that. This episode is brought to you by the Live and Work Joyfully community. Live and Work Joyfully is an inclusive community that is for anyone who's ready to upgrade themselves. If you're ready to work through health concerns, if you're ready to experience a more joyful day in your nine to five, this is really where you need to be. This is where self-improvement meets professional development. And it's all under one umbrella. People in nutrition already know how you fuel your body and how you relate to food and your body really affects your ability to thrive in the workforce. It affects your energy levels and the emotional bandwidth you have during the business day. That's why it made so much sense to marry these two things, your happiness at home and your happiness at work. Be sure to check out the community visiting www.daliakinsey.com under the community tab. And if you want to go straight there, it's simply community.daliakinsey.com. Don't worry. The link is in the show notes. All right, let's get back to the episode. And that's a great way to teach math. 
even at the elementary middle school level, it works. It's addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, but you can program in formulas. So uh, I think that's an easy one. I think learning how to talk to people, um, it, you know, uh, as though you're selling to them uses all of Aristotle's ways of, of uh, convincing people of persuasion. Uh, and that can be used too, not just in writing, but in speaking and doing an elevator pitch. It's totally possible and, and should be required. So I think food, which used to be derisively considered women's work and therefore not worthy of, of scholarly study, has come a long way. And so Oxford, you know, has an encyclopedia of food. NYU has a bachelor's, master's and PhD program in food studies, in, you know, history, anthropology, business, the whole thing. Uh, nutrition, clearly part of that. Um, and, and it's a real, you know, serious world of endeavor at this point. So I don't think anything's wrong with bringing it in as, you know, across uh, disciplines uh, the way I did uh, to work with English teachers and social studies teachers and math teachers to, you know, make the learning relevant, especially to students who are not okay in the abstract world of college prep. Right. And yes, that's so true that learning how to speak to people and being able to pitch yourself Mm-hmm. is a crucial skill that isn't taught. Most people have to go out and pursue that after they enter the workforce and realize that they need to know how to make a cold call or how to explain to someone what they do in a way that's relevant to them. That's something you have to pay for later and not everyone will have that option when they need it. So mm-hmm. that would be very helpful. Right, right. And just learning learning about marketing and learning how to, you know, to look at things from that angle was valuable. I brought in a marketing professional to my class and he was very funny. He said, okay, uh, this group over here, you're going to come up with a sales pitch for a Subaru. And so are you, but you're selling to suburban moms and you're selling to single guys, totally different pitch. Right. Right. Um, And then they did the same thing with strawberries. Uh, and so students had to figure out that, oh, my God, you know, it's not just what I think or what's intrinsic to the Subaru. It's about what is the person I'm selling to think and how do I how do I get to them? All right. And that was very eye opening for students who had never really thought that way because they had been so programmed by uh, by our current society and by the current teachers to uh, express themselves. What do they feel? Right. Well, in, in the real world, nobody really cares unless you're the customer. And so getting them to understand the customer and saying, oh, you're going to make money on selling this Subaru based on whether you can sell it to these two people. And you're not going to say the same thing to these two people. Going into the four-wheel drive details with the suburban mom is not as important as safety and vice versa. Right. So, so uh, you know, they, they, they totally got that. And, and that was like a big eye-opening moment. I mean, that's huge, even for people who are already in the workforce who don't work in marketing, because I'm constantly hearing like getting participation with your national association. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of times people who are really concerned about that and are trying to boost membership and engagement, they aren't marketing majors and they keep talking about the value without thinking about who they're talking to. Right. And it just isn't landing. Right. So, yeah. And then we talk about food, right? So you have your nutritionist types 
who like to talk about the nutritional value to kids. And it's it's like the peanuts parents. Bah, 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 bah. Nope. So what? Does it taste good? And, yeah. And, and that that's kind of what matters. People won't eat things just because they're healthy. Yeah, very, very rarely. So rarely. And by and large, like you said at the beginning, people say they want to eat healthy, but then they don't. I think the basic thing is people do what they want to do. And we will come up with all these excuses for ourselves to explain why we don't do something. Oh, it's the time. It's the this. It's the that. It's the whatever. Well, maybe you don't want to. And maybe that's okay. Let's figure out what do you want to do? Oh, you want to eat things that taste delicious. Well, I guess it's time to shift our focus. Why can't it support you and be delicious, but it's going to be over the course of a week or over the course of a month? It may not be perfect at every meal, like you explained. Well, so the idea here, and if you, I mean, I think it would be good, for example, uh, for some students in some class at some school to do a poll on what is your typical breakfast, lunch, dinner? What do you eat on the weekends, right? And the, the goal at school should be not to suddenly introduce the perfect diet as though such a thing exists. The goal would be maybe to move the needle. So if they're normally eating nothing but food out of cans and bags, processed food, if they're not normally eating vegetables, if they're not normally eating, you know, fresh meat uh, or fresh poultry, uh, then just by introducing those items with anything is a win. Even if it's broccoli covered in melted cheese, just make it real cheese. Okay. Instead of making a bechamel sauce with roux, flour and butter, and milk, and then adding a bunch of processed cheese to make a nacho cheese sauce, just melt cheddar over it and put some sprinkles of bacon. Fine. If that gets them to eat the broccoli, you're way ahead already. Hmm. Right? Yeah. It, now- go ahead. Since kids do eat so differently at home, have you ever found that, like, if you're eating all highly processed, high in sodium foods at home, and then you come to school and you eat something that is more fresh, won't you kind of have a desensitized palate and maybe not be able to fully experience that food? Because every day you go home and you have something just really, really that blows the taste buds out? Well, so... What's blowing the taste buds out, and I'll use my students uh, in general, is they would, for example, get those uh, those spicy chips and then squeeze lime into the bag. That was the 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 thing. Um, can't even remember the brand of the chip. Those spicy like spicy Cheetos, and they'd squeeze lime into the bag and shake it up, and that was their flavor. So, I mean, it's not rocket science if you break it down. That's lime and spice. So why can't you make you know? Chicken with lime and spice. Why can't you make uh, broccoli with lime and spice or zucchini? It's totally possible, right? Instead of lemon, you use lime on your asparagus uh, this time of year. Um, If that's what they like, then make it the way they like or offer that option. Like, for example, if you have uh, take the the Vietnamese or Mexican restaurant that has a range of condiments uh, or a steakhouse, range of condiments that you can put on your food. And people choose what they like, the salsa, the onions, the cilantro, or the uh, sriracha, uh, fish sauce, soy sauce, you know, choose what you like or offer those things so that, you know, you're serving a vegetable that is seasoned as opposed to kind of plain. I find that um, 
Well, my kids will eat, you know, plain vegetables, but they're tossed in butter, right? Uh, you get teenagers, they're not, I mean, they probably never had fresh asparagus. In my case, they never, none of them had ever had fresh asparagus. So I forced them to eat asparagus with hollandaise, which they really liked. Um, and they had to learn how to make hollandaise and cost it out and the whole thing. Um, but then they actually liked the asparagus, uh, but they, something they'd never been exposed to before. So, you know, I think I had to force them to eat it. And I don't know if a cafeteria venue will force them to eat it. But if you make fried rice with asparagus, they'll eat it. They'll say, what's this green stuff? But they'll eat it. If you make, um, you know, asparagus, pasta with asparagus, right, and butter and Parmesan, they'll eat it. And and that's a delicious dish, frankly. Um, so there's ways to do it. And I think I think using choosing high quality ingredients and Parmesan is a good example. Instead of using a processed cheese, use a very way less of the good stuff, and it gives just as much flavor because it's an intensely flavored cheese. But use less. How do you control your costs when you start spending money on higher quality ingredients? Uh, well, use less. Um, you know, the, the reality is like to use the butter example, um, if given toast and butter or margarine, people will end up using more margarine to get the impact um, than they would butter. So same thing is true with the cooking. If you're using high quality stuff, you just you need less of it, but it becomes more satisfying. If you put a little butter, a little country ham, a little prosciutto, a little bacon, um, uh, you know, smoked mushrooms, Parmesan cheese into the dish, it increases the satisfaction by increasing the flavor as opposed to a boneless, skinless chicken breast, which you eat like a cow because it's flavorless and you'll never get satisfied. You know, the, right, you just keep eating constantly all day. Like, like, you know, herbivores tend to do. Um, the, my favorite example of, of this concept is McDonald's and, um, you know, up until the early 80s, they fried their fries in the natural byproduct of the hamburger industry, which is tallow, beef fat. And there were 26 French fries in a bag, and they came in bags of McDonald's fries. I don't know if you remember that. I um, remember the bags, yeah. And there were 26 fries in that bag. And that was enough for everyone. But then the, uh, you know, Heart Association folks shamed McDonald's into getting rid of tallow, which was an animal fat and all natural and instead frying it in a vegetarian blessing in a vegetarian uh, uh, fat, otherwise known as, you know, shortening. Now the problem with that is a, it didn't taste nearly as good. B it's a trans fat. So it's far worse for you. The only advantage is it's not animal based. And that's if you're a vegetarian, but to the majority of people, they just lost twice. The thing, it doesn't taste as good. And it's not as satisfying. So people would go back and get more fries. So McDonald's, of course, notices what people are eating, like me in the cafeteria, right? And it develops the supersize because people weren't satisfied with the one little bag of fries anymore. So they get the bigger fries. Now, this, <laughs> the, ob the obesity epidemic begins there. It is so interesting. I I don't eat at McDonald's anymore. It feels like after a certain age, it just it isn't really um, palatable. Not to throw any shade at McDonald's, but someone brought in something from there and for everybody for breakfast because we're all 
you know, not able to go out so much right now. Mm-hmm. And it was crazy. It didn't matter. I ate two of them and it was as good as having air. It was like no satiety happened afterwards. No, no. It was just like, like it was nothing. Right. So the goal would be aiming for flavor. And when you get more flavor, you eat less. It's, it's that simple. If you provide boring food, the equivalent of, you know, grain, people will eat more because they're just not satisfied. And so you win twice by offering better flavored food. That right? makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then since we have to- make collard greens with country ham, right? You will eat a little bit and it's delicious, but you're like, you're done. You're, you're happy. Oh yeah. I need to try that experiment because I was thinking, especially with the kids who keep saying the portions aren't large enough for them and they're not satisfied, but they also typically the kids that say they're still hungry, they don't eat the other things that were available that had a lot of fiber in them. Like they won't eat the whole grain. They won't eat the, um, the fruits or the vegetables or whatever. So I was thinking they're staying hungry because they're not getting any fiber, you know, and their stomach isn't feeling the fullness. But I hadn't even thought about flavor also playing a role in their satiety. Well, I think I think there's probably some areas where, a, you know, a, a well-meaning nutritionist is trying to introduce fiber for minimal gain. So if you're serving, you know, like wild rice instead of white rice, you know, in a, in a three-ounce serving, you know, a, they're never going to eat it. But B, how much are you really gaining? If they did eat it, how much are they gaining? Right? For sure, it's a total loss because you're throwing it away. So financially, it's a loser. Like no no restaurant would continue to serve something no one eats. Right? Um, they would chip something to eat. But, I mean, what would be so wrong with wild rice that was fried with some asparagus and eggs and soy sauce? Right? Really? I mean, it, it's not going to hurt. Ultimately, though, the kids will eat it. Um, and, you know, trying to, you know, if you put a veg medley on a plate, the problem there is that none of it will be properly cooked. Because if, you know, the, if you put carrots and zucchini together, the carrots will be undercooked and the zucchini will be overcooked. Guaranteed. It just, it's just basic cooking unless you cook them separately and then combine. So you need to, like, address cook each thing differently or separately, or at least dice them the same exact size so that you can't pick one out or the other. But you also have to, you know, work with the kid's psychology and sell it to them. So you have to put them in a form that they want. So if you were to do a a burrito with a regular tortilla, don't give them a green tortilla. You know, give them a regular tortilla. There's no, how much spinach is in a green tortilla? (laughs) I would never go for that anyway because we couldn't get any credit for it. Because right, it's not a significant amount right. of spinach, so why bother? Yeah. So, but if if in that regular tortilla you have very flavorful uh, rice, beans, salsa, or, or avocado, right, and, and and meat of some sort or eggs, and also in there were you know an ounce or two of peas. Would that kill anyone? Or zucchini, chayote, you know, something traditional that's cooked and it's mixed in. They will eat it because it's not worth the trouble to pick it out. They're handheld. They'll eat it. So 
you have to work with them. Or same thing with the fried rice. You mix it all up. If you dice it all small, you know, uh, it looks better. The imperfections in the vegetables don't show. It cooks more evenly. Uh, this is just basic culinary skills that most chefs will tell you. Uh, but you want to, you know, dice it smaller. Um, when, when you go to someplace that's kind of rustic and you get, you know, half a corn cob and, and a big chunk of carrot in there, people eat the soup. They might pick up and eat the corn, but they're not going to eat the carrot. So make it all small. It's just easier. to eat. So you have to, you have to kind of look at that. And, you know, you see even stuff on Food Network, you'll see these dishes that, that look like artwork. But ultimately, if it's hard to eat, people will not eat the part that's hard to eat. Hmm. Now, we've been trying to accommodate the fact that we have a lot of kids who have particular things they want to eat by making it easy for them to combine everything into a dish. But then it seems like we're missing out on an opportunity to make sure they accept the thing that they're not so into by going ahead and chopping it up and preparing it the way we would prefer that they eat it. So how would you accommodate like the kid who says, well, I don't eat tomatoes, but I want all that other stuff rather than just putting everything out in part so that, that they can uh, put it together. Like how do you take care of both of those kids at the same time? Uh, I don't know. I, I would ask the kid personally if their mama allows them to take the tomatoes out of the food or do they eat pizza and pasta? And the answer will be yes. Right. So, uh, you know, it's, if, if it's mixed in, it's mixed in. Um, you know, it, you if when you customize, you raise the cost and you slow down the process. So you're, you're trying to feed, you know, hundreds of people at a time. Customization is challenging, right? The customization, make, I mean, the simple thing is to make the dish basic and offer the range of salsas and condiments at the end, right? Uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far as into customizing. Um, and, you know, okay, nuts, obviously that's going to be a problem with a lot of allergies. So maybe you just don't use nuts or you offer nuts at the end as a garnish, right? Um, I, 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 I don't even bother dealing with vegans because they're probably not an appreciable number of students to worry about. And uh, they're probably also used to the challenges if there are any um, vegetarians. Again, if there are any, most of the options are going to be available to be vegetarian, but what I would, I would avoid serving like uh, uh, you know, a, a chicken or, or meat as a piece. I would mix it in. Gotcha. That would your cost. Um, you know, you, you could, I mean, I guess you can serve meatballs, uh, in, in a pasta, but you're going to do better by putting bacon in the pasta. It's going to taste better. It's going to cost less. And I could see because it, because you basically have the same kids every day, you should be able to project how many kids actually need those special things and you could right. just have a separate item for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and the, you know, maybe if you prepare it a certain way, they, you know, they can, they can try it or they might find out that they actually like it. I mean, with my students, the beginning of the year, I would always get this, oh, I don't eat vegetables line. And I would say, oh, I don't pass students who don't eat vegetables response. And magically they would start eating vegetables and they say, oh, it's not that bad. But I mean, clearly no one ever tried. So I don't, I don't play that. Uh, and they knew that. And so, you know, ended up trying it but then when you make it properly and serve it you know with a tasty sauce they'll eat it yeah i mean to me the fact that hollandaise is 
uh, butter and egg yolks and lemon uh, will not take away from the fact that a kid will eat asparagus with it and not without it. I'd rather they eat the asparagus. Who cares about the butter and the egg yolks? Right. right? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and then when it comes to the waste, one of the misconceptions I had about fine dining was that the whole operation must be much more expensive and the waste must be higher because the final product that you receive as a customer is so beautiful and nothing looks like it was odd or peculiar. It looks like you got all the best pieces of everything. But you explain that's totally not the case. That's the opposite. So your top chefs use everything. Because, well, in part, they're buying a lot of expensive ingredients. But, you know, if you peel a carrot and you throw away an ounce of peel, you know, that adds up very quickly. So that peel goes into something. I mean, if not, that you're not selling it directly, but at least you're getting some use out of it. So that'll go into the chicken stock, for example. Right. Throwing stuff away is a loss. But also part of the idea of cooking uh, by any modern chef or anyone's grandmother is to use everything in some way because you paid for it. And uh, part of the challenge of cooking is you know nose to tail cooking. For example, you get a pig, you use the whole pig. You make hams out of the, the hind legs. You make uh, a roast out of the, the saddle. Uh, you, you make uh, bacon out of the belly. You make sausages and salamis out of shoulder cuts and, and odd pieces. You make a ragu, uh, you know, you use everything. You make ribs out of ribs. And, and the fact is that why wouldn't you use the whole thing? You paid for it. But also by using it all differently, you're able to make, offer a huge variety of different things. Now, what that requires is labor. So your typical fine dining restaurant will have a very high labor cost because they have people doing all that work. So you're taking the carrots and, and you're making things with that and the peel as well. You're taking the stems from the carrots and you're making a sauce out of that, you know, on and on and on. You, if you're using the egg yolks for a custard, you're using egg whites to make consomme uh, or egg white omelets for that, you know, old person at breakfast who wants an egg white omelet. Um, so, uh, but you're, you're going to, why would you throw anything away? And so, uh, you know, even with a, like a side of salmon, the, the tasting menu will use that belly strip, the thin piece, in, in a small piece of salmon toro, whereas the back part of the salmon that's thicker, that'll be like in an entree, you know, six-ounce portion, a five-ounce portion, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, no, no, in fine dining, you use everything. Um, you know, I, I here at home, you know, I juiced a bunch of uh, uh, oranges for orange juice, and then I made candied orange rinds for cocktails, out of the run. Yeah, good. Boil them in simple syrup until they're cooked and then roll them in sugar and they last forever. Well, until they get eaten. Um, so no, the, 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 you got to use everything. And that's, that's what cooking is. Now, unfortunately, cafeterias have uh, not a lot of people working there. And so they're not set up to take advantage of that. But then it's up to good be, to do good shopping. So buy the better ingredients and combine them. Right. You, they can't do the labor that a, a restaurant with a brigade of cooks could do. So then it's but you can buy pre-cuts, you know, of fresh vegetables if you want to from your produce company. Uh, you can buy pre-peeled potatoes from Cisco, um, you know, and, and various things. And, and it's just a matter of then learning to combine things well. 
But no, you don't. You're you're paying more for the pre-peeled potato because you don't have the time to peel and do something with those peels. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you've paid for someone else's labor to get yeah. the product that way. Yeah. So I, I think a cafeteria is going to have a much higher food cost than a fine dining restaurant. Hmm. Interesting. So also you had mentioned basically some of the ways that you could see school nutrition doing more real food with things that are handheld and um, easy to serve different ways would be like soups and salads. And you mentioned burritos can be served. What are some of the different ways we could do the burrito? I mean, just look at the the various food trucks you'll find out there that'll have the uh, Korean tacos, right? Or the sushiritos. Not that you would serve that in a school, but but the idea is the same. I mean, you can put a lot of stuff in a burrito and kids will eat it. Pizza, maybe people are a little pickier, but you can make a, a, a good pizza dough. It's flour, water, yeast, and salt, um, and and maybe olive oil if you're making focaccia, and top it with tomato sauce and maybe some good mozzarella cheese and maybe vegetables or some combination. Um, that's a little harder because they can see it. But if you make a burrito and you're, you're I mean, beans and rice, you're already ahead, right? So if you get beans and rice and eggs or beans and rice and chicken or beans and rice and, and beef or pork in, the, in there, you're good. Then it's like seasoning, salsas, right? And if you want to get a fresh vegetable in there, you can. If you want to make a, a, a lettuce wrap with something tasty inside the lettuce wrap, please eat that. It's crunchy. Uh, it's a taco. But it's not hard to fold a bunch of stuff into a burrito. If you think about it or fried rice, right? Uh, if you serve fried rice with, you know, classic fried rice is going to have, say, peas, carrots, country ham, uh, eggs. I mean, you're, you're winning. You're ahead. Yeah. You know, so what if you the rice is not a bad thing? Um, and, you know, the, uh, the soy sauce in it or, or garlic and ginger, not a bad thing. So. I think you could make fried rice and put it into a, a burrito and have a fried rice burrito. Easy money. People I think that would go over really well. Yeah. Um, similarly, you do the beans and rice, fried rice, both of them work. People will eat it. Um, but your your goal is they'll eat the rice. But if you stud the rice with peas and carrots, okay, they'll eat that too. Yeah. The rice, right? Yeah, the pasta burrito concept was new to me, too. It's like the options are endless, really, with the burrito. I mean, haven't you seen the mac and cheese sandwich? I hadn't, (laughs) but I have now. So, the concept, if you make make baked pasta, pasta al forno, right? And it's, you know, usually it's a short pasta, not a long pasta, because baked pasta, you got to cut out of a casserole and serve. Mm -hmm. If you make the equivalent of mac and cheese, but it's you know, pasta with, uh, you know, tomato sauce and cheese and mushrooms and peas and carrots and, and zucchini, right? But again, cheese. And you bake that and you slice it and put it in a sandwich. Okay, that's edible. Or you put it in a burrito. Same thing. That'll work. Yeah. Uh, cheese works. Cheese sells food. Um, you know, people Yeah, like- I believe that. And, and But the fact is you don't have to use processed American cheese, you can use real cheese. And if you're using if you're using four ounces of American cheese or, or some processed cheese product, you could switch to one ounce of Parmesan or Pecorino or aged powder uh, or something like that or, or, or aged Jack 
and get way more flavor with way less cheese. Mm. You follow? Yeah. Yeah. So, and then you offer condiments, you offer, you know, cool hot sauces and uh, uh, stuff at the end that people like to dip into. That all sounds delicious. How do you make salads interesting for kids though? That seems like more of a challenge. That's a bigger challenge. Um, you know, like potato salad, they like chicken salad, typically even tuna salad. So the hard thing is going to be like a mixed green salad. Uh, that's that's down the road. But if you start off with what you know they do eat, and then you start riffing from there, then you, I think you'll find buy-in. So, you know, pull back on the mayonnaise, maybe add in some mustard, or make it a spicy potato salad or even a vinegary potato salad, you know. Uh, you can do that, but then you can also add vegetables in there, you know. Uh, you could do a, a variety of flavors on a carrot salad, you know, with raisins and, and stuff like that that'll work. Or you, a Waldorf salad, which is, you know, apples, celery, mayonnaise still, but apples, celery. Uh, and that's that's a winner. Uh, so you start off, there's plenty of that exist. And yeah. it depends on here. Uh, and then again, if you put in a little bit of, uh, you know, diced ham or salami or or things that, that make it look appealing, they eat it because then it tastes like that. Mm. Man, these tips are priceless. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. This has been Did awesome. Did we get all the food topics? I know we got off topic. I nailed it. You knocked yeah. it out of the park. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. You have a good day. You too. Bye. Okay, now that you've heard the full interview, what are you thinking? Please be sure to share any thoughts that came up for you during the episode and give feedback. Have you used any of these flavor adding practices before? Have you run into challenges when you tried to implement any of this advice? Is some of this new to you? The show is on a new platform now, and you can easily leave voice messages. You'll find the link by scrolling down in the show notes. And I have other exciting news. I mentioned before that I'm shifting to job site wellness, but I'm taking it a step even farther and totally rebranding the show. So you may have noticed that the cover image has changed. I've gone ahead and shifted some things so that as I do speaking engagements at the end of the year, it'll be easy for people to find the podcast at the start of January. January is when the major changes will begin. I will have a co-host very soon and who that is will let be a little bit of a surprise for now, but we're going to start promotions in November. So don't worry, it will not be a secret for long. I'm very excited about this. I think together the show is going to be even more powerful and we're going to take it into a direction that's really fresh so that even if you don't end up working in school nutrition for the long term, all the things you learn with us will be very relevant. 
In the meantime, I'm doing a lot of work in the inclusive employee wellness space. My next webinar is going to be October 31st at noon. I'll be joined by Stephen Wakabayashi. He is from the Yellow Glitter podcast, and we're going to be digging deep into cancel culture and how we can navigate relationships in 2020 with people that don't see life through the same lens as us. A lot of people have gotten canceled this year. A lot of people are probably about to be canceled this year. We're going to discuss whether or not this is sustainable for the long term, how you know when you should cut someone out of your life, and how you'll know when possibly there's an opportunity for growth there. I interviewed Stephen on my LGBTQIA plus show, Body Liberation for All. Stephen is equal parts fabulous and wise beyond his years. So I know this is going to be a great show. So I encourage you to register right now. The Eventbrite link is also in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode. I will see you next time.